Our uh, sermon text for this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Father, what God is great like our God, who rides through the heavens to our help. And in his majesty, through the skies. The eternal God is our dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So, Lord, as we undertake to open this passage of Scripture, I pray for there to be a massive strength underneath us, holding us, making yourself felt to us as a great God, a holy God, a righteous and good God. Pray for those in the room who don't know you, Father, as a Father, friend, Savior through Jesus Christ. Their eyes would be opened and they would believe. Pray for wavering saints. Pray for the confused. I pray for the lonely and I pray for the depressed. Oh God, there are a thousand ways for you to use the Word of God beyond our intentions. Apply it as a good physician to everybody's need in this room, I pray. Help me now to speak the Word with truth and with freedom with biblical faithfulness and humility and with spiritual effectiveness in people's lives. Grant us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to savor and obey. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. The main point of the book of Romans so far has been this, that God Almighty is gloriously righteous in justifying the ungodly by faith alone apart from works of the law. Say it again. The main point of Romans so far has been God is righteous in justifying the ungodly 
through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Paul said in chapter 4, verse 5, Now unto him who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be reckoned as righteousness. To which every righteous bone in our bodies cries out, How can this be? Acquit the guilty? Justify the ungodly? Everything cries out for an explanation here because that's not right. It's not right to justify the ungodly. It's wrong for a judge to do that. So everything in us cries out for an explanation, which is why the book of Romans is written. And why the most important paragraph in the book of Romans was written, namely chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, where it says that God put forth Jesus Christ, his son, so that in his dying, in our place, God might be both just and justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Not just this. I didn't say the main point of the book of Romans was that the, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. I didn't say that was the main point. I said the main point was God is righteous to justify the ungodly. By faith alone, apart from works of the law. And that demands the cross, which is the center of the book, and the center of history, and the center of our lives. Any old rascal judge can say to a rapist and a murderer, not guilty, go sin no more. Any rascal can say that and lose his job. But to say that... And be righteous. That takes a cross. That takes the death of the Son of God. So, there is righteousness in God in justifying John Piper, the ungodly. Now, underneath all of that gospel is an assumption, foundation, namely this. There is law in the universe. There's law. The creator of the universe has expressed his will, and it's law. What God says stands. There is law. God has spoken. So there is law, and therefore there is law breaking, and therefore there is guilt, and therefore there is court, and therefore there is judge, and therefore there is condemnation or justification. 
The fact that there's a, a Jesus Christ who dies to bear my sin. The fact that there is judge God to justify me as I trust in Him and not myself and my righteousness. The fact that there is this glorious acquittal because of Christ's shed blood and righteousness is all owing to one massive assumption. There is law. The whole structure of reality, God is judge, Christ is sin bearer, a courtroom scene with guilty sinners, acquitted by a judge, scot-free for believing in Jesus, everlasting life, is all assuming one great thing, law. Now, the reason I say that, the reason I stress that, is because Paul said some really negative things about the law. This grand, massive, all-explaining foundation of the whole of history and redemption, he said some pretty negative things about this law. I got a phone call this week from a man who'd been given a tape from one of my messages on Romans 716 where we were dealing with some of these things. He was really quite upset. He doesn't go to this church. He said, you shouldn't say those kinds of things about the law. I said, me? Let's rehearse this a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 3, verse 20, 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God is manifested. Chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified apart from works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 13, the promise to Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that transgressions would increase. 6, chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Gets worse. Chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another who was raised from the dead. You hear that? The law bars you from marrying Jesus till you die to it. So it says, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law now, it's a sin producer, it sounds like, or a sin arouser. 
We're at work in the members of our bodies to bear fruit for death. A sin arouser, a killer. Paul, Paul, be careful. It's God's word. This is the creator of the universe. He has spoken. Be careful. Verse 6, chapter 7. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might now finally serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. So what's the law do? It hinders life in the Spirit. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. We've been released so that we can serve in the Spirit. No wonder you get a phone call. I didn't say it. It's not my problem. It should amaze us. It should shock us. That a man, even an inspired man, would talk this way about the law of God. It should shock you. So, what's the point of all that? Just so that when verse 7 lands now, it won't come out of nowhere. All right? Let's read it. So, what shall we say? Is the law sin? He didn't make up that question. That's what you sound like. That's what his enemies are saying. He says, that's why I get phone calls. Right? You know you're on the right track when you get a phone call. Chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin? Law, the pastor says we're justified by faith alone. Apart from works of the law, let's continue in sin. That grace may abound. You get a few phone calls about dumping on law or dumping on grace. Then you know you, you're, you're getting what Paul got. These rhetorical questions aren't coming out of nowhere. Is the law then sin? You see, to, to, on, on behalf of the guy who called, who's a law lover, let's be honest. You ought to be a law lover. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Watch out if you're a law scoffer. Psalm 1, on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit. His leaf does not wither. In everything he does, he prospers because he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. These great Old Testament saints love the law. And so I can see why they might respond to Paul and say, Paul, you ought to talk that way. So what would Paul say to them? He say, well, I don't care what you think about what I say, or I don't care what you feel about the law. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just saying what it is. Does he not care what you think about the law? He cares. 
And that's where this paragraph comes from. He cares a lot. Matters a lot how you think about the law. And so we're barely going to scratch it this morning. And I'll be on this for some weeks because I care about your caring about the law. What's his answer to his question? Is the law sin? His answer is no. May it never be, he says, very strong. May it never be. He goes further at the end of the paragraph, verse 12, puts it positively. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, um, think about good and righteous. Holy, righteous, good. The law is that. As I pondered that Friday, it hit me. You know, there's one other place, only one, in all of Paul's writings where he puts good and righteous together. Ring any bells? We've been there. Chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, One will hardly die for a righteous man. Yet, perchance, one might even die for a good man. Hmm. Righteous, good. Righteous, good. What does that mean? What's the difference between a righteous man and a good man? Why would you maybe die for a righteous man, but really probably die for a good man? What's that? Is it something like this? When you consider a person for his righteousness, you mainly consider him for his doing what's right and correct, keeping the rules and making sure his life conforms to a standard. And that's good. You might admire a man like that, keeps his life right in line, enough to die for him. But then it says, but you'd be more inclined to step up and suffer and die for a man who was good. What's that? More than that. Well, we all know what that is. We all know people who orient off of standards. And orient off of rules and do a pretty good job of it. And frankly, we don't like some of them. Because what's missing, perhaps, now I'm creating, I'm creating a, um, a conflict here that is not in Paul's mind, I don't think. I think he thinks these two things can go exactly side by side with no conflict. But there is another way of coming at reality than rule keeping. And that is person nurturing, caring. A a good person is good to you. In other words, they don't just think, now, what's the right thing to do here? But they like the right thing because they know it's good for you. Right things, when God speaks them, are good for you. And they like it for that reason as well as the fact that it's right. And the goodness comes out and you feel it. You feel it coming through their obedience to God. They care about you 
They care about you. And they're good. Okay. Now, if I'm on the right track at 5-7, let's bring it over to 7-7 or 7-12. What does it mean when he says the law is not sin? And not only is it not sin, it is holy, which means, yes, it's high and separated and pure and reflecting the absolute perfections of God. And it's right. It accords with all that is right and true and correct and more. It's good. It's good. It's good for you. Good. So, Paul cares about what we think about the law. Cares about it. He wants you to experience the law as a standard. He wants you to experience the law as high and reflecting God's greatness and separate perfection from all that is sin and impure. And he wants you to taste This is good. This is good for you. Sandwiched between verse 12, the positive, and verse 7, the negative. No, it's not sin. Yes, it's holy, righteous, and good. Is an argument. Now, a little parenthesis here for all of you who've taken Tom Steller's classes on how to read the Bible called arcing. This is a bilateral. The rest of you don't need to listen to this. Sandwiched in between this statement is holy, is just and good, and this statement, it is not sin, is a a support in both directions. It supports, no, it's not sin, and it supports, yes, it is holy. And so everything in here is argument. I remember 20-whatever years ago, 1968, 69, 70, when I discovered for the first time that the Bible argues. It's like the sun coming out. I thought it was just a list of verses, pearls on a string. Take a pearl, admire it, put it in your pocket, live by it. Yeah, good, great, I love it. Or change the image, like a lifesaver. Put it in here, suck on it all day long. The savor goes down, nourishes you. Yes, amen, I do that still. But it is also a chain with links. Because, therefore, in order that. Really amazing. He gives reasons for what he says. Close princess. Take the class. So. That's where we're going to be for several weeks. We'll be here in this paragraph for quite a while because I share Paul's conviction that those phone calls um, not come anymore. So here's my first observation. I'm only going to make one today. No, the law is not sin. Why? Beginning of the argument. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. There must be three sermons in that verse. Here's my first observation. We need to know our sin. And it's important to know our sin. 
The reason I infer that from this verse is because the argument won't work if that's not true. The argument says, is the law sin? No. Why do you say no? You've just said so many negative things about it. Sounds like you think it's sin. No, it's not sin because I wouldn't know sin if it weren't for the law. To which somebody might say, who cares if you know sin? Why would you want to know sin anyway? Now, if that's the answer you give, the argument won't work. But if it seems to you important that you know your sin, then the argument holds some water. If it's really important, if it's good for me, good to know my sin, then it's an argument that's going to work. So here's my one point today. We need to know our sin. That's all. It's important for you to know your sin, not mine. For me to know mine, not yours. It's important for me to know my sin. My sin, not sins, not the list. The being, the corruption, the power that produces those little things out there. That's not the big problem. Those actions are not the big problem. I'm the problem. And I need to know me. I need to know me. Oh, the perils of not knowing my sin. Oh, the sadness that comes into life for those who have not tasted the sadness of knowing their sin. Oh, the pain that comes into the soul and the marriage and the family and the church where we have not felt the pain of knowing our sin. Oh, the self-destruction that comes to us when we have not experienced the self-devastation Of knowing our sin. Oh, the eternal loss of the soul that has not lost its pride through the knowledge of sin. This is good for us. It's important, really important, for you to know your sin today. It's important for your marriage To know your sin. Not her sin. Sin is mainly reflected in marriages by being more interested in the sin of your spouse than your own. That's the main manifestation of sin. It'll heal marriages to be broken. It'll heal parenting to be broken. It'll heal churches to be broken. People who know their own sin. They're healers. They're healers. Hurts. Hurts. And heals. You know one of the biggest evidences in this room right now that there's sin here? There's lots of them. But here's one. Some of you right now are thinking... The pastor just told us to experiment with sin. 
Get acquainted with your sin. No sin. Try a little internet nudity. Try a little fornication. Lie a little. Steal a little something to see what it feels like. Get to know it. That's what he said. That's an evidence of sin in this room. Somebody is actually going to walk out of here and say, I said that. Because here's the way it works. Here's the way it works. See, sin is sub-rational and therefore powerful beyond the mind. Inexplicable, irrational, taking the mind captive, making the mind justify what it wants so that our minds become the lackey of this power. So we think what our sin wants us to think. Until there's a liberating power that comes into our lives. And we will actually use our brains to distort reality to justify sinful desires. Well, I didn't say it and I don't mean it and it's now on the tape. Do not experiment with sin to get to know sin. There's a better way. We use a parable to say it. Parable. What I'm doing here is answering the question, well, don't you have to be a sinner? I mean, do some sins and get to know sin like you ought to know it? I say, well, that's not a problem. No. Once there were three men standing before a pit. The pit is the pit of lust. Women, you make the necessary adjustments. I'm going to talk about men. Tied around their waist is a cord. 100-pound test cord. The cord goes into the pit. The pit looks very attractive. And it's deadly. Snakes at the bottom of the pit. It's the pit of lust, pit of pornography, the pit of internet nudity. It's a click away from everybody. The first man begins to feel the rope, the cord, pulling him toward the pit. And he resists. Ten pounds, fifteen pounds, twenty pounds. Digs in his heels, 30 pounds. He says, no. 35 pounds, tightens up. He gives up resisting, jumps into the pit. Click. The second man begins to feel the the cord pulling on him, on his waist. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 Digs in his heels, resists. No, he says. 40, 45, 50 pounds. No. Leans back. Starts to tighten. Makes his breathing more difficult. 50, 55 pounds. No. 60. Quits resisting. Jumps in. Click. 
click. The third man begins to be pulled. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty-five, thirty pounds. Digs in his heels. Resists. No, he says out loud. No. Forty, forty-five, fifty. Starts to tighten. His breath is being cut off. No. He leans back. He cries out for help. Help. He sees a branch. Grabs a branch. Shaped like a cross. The branch is shaped like a cross. Sixty-five. Seventy. And off across the field, in his mind's eye, as through a haze, he sees his wife going about her work, trusting him. Over on that side, he sees his children playing happily and in their hearts, admiring him. And then he lifts up his eyes to the horizon and he sees Jesus with a big gash in his side. And his hands are lifted and his fists are formed and there's a big smile on his face. 85 90 and the cord starts cutting into his side no and he looks up 95 100 snap no click now here's my question Which of these three men knows the power of sin? If this were a sermon on lust, I would, uh, at this point, lift up my voice and scan this congregation and shout, Are there any soldiers here? Anybody got blood in his shirt? Show me some scars before you talk about the power of sin. Don't show me your broken ankles at the bottom of the pit. I want to see blood. But it isn't a sermon on lust. So, I'll skip that. And go back to the point. All I'm doing with that little parable is answering the question, don't you need to sin more to know how sinful you really are? And the answer is no. You don't. In fact, the wimps who give in at 30 and 60, they don't know. They think they know. Call it bondage. They'll even use words, use words like fall. You'll notice I did not use the word fall. I said jump. You don't fall on a mouse. 
You didn't fall. You jumped. And you jumped at 25 pounds and you don't have a scar on your body. Come on. No. It's not a sermon on lust. So, it's good for us to know our sin. It's good for us. And the law is given to help us know our sin. Why is it good for us? Well, that's next week and, and the weeks to come. Why is it precious? Why did I say there's a sadness that comes from not knowing it and there's a pain that comes from not knowing it and there's a self-destruction that comes from not knowing it and there's an eternal loss that comes from not knowing it? Why, why do I say it is precious to know our sin? Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and I'm going to answer that question next Sunday, to which somebody might respond, um, Palm Sunday? Take a break. To which I respond, you know what I see on Palm Sunday? I see people waving palm branches. Hail! King of the Jews. And on Friday, crucify him. Crucify him. Where'd that come from? What is the explanation for that? Answer, sin. The reason those stories are written is so that we might know ourselves. We're there. We're there with branches in our hands. And we're there with crucifying, crucifying when we click. Because he died to purify our minds. And every click is a sword thrust. We're there. This is a Palm Sunday issue. So we'll be back and ask the question, is it good for me? Why is it good for me? And why covetousness? Why you pick on covetousness? Why didn't you pick on adultery? Pastors made a big deal out of lust this morning. You pick on covetousness. I'll tell you why next Sunday. Why covetousness? In verse 7. But I end, I close. Just by saying again. It's good for us. It's important for us that we know our sins. Let me say it again. Mine, not yours. I'm not snooping for you. I'm snooping for me. I am on a search for John Piper's sinfulness. I want to know me. I want to hate that about me which does not conform to the goodness and the righteousness of God. I want to be broken before my wife so I don't treat her harshly. I want to be broken before my little five-year-old so that I have more patience. This is good for us. If you know your sin, your sin, not mine, not the person next to you, not your spouse or that crabby person at work, but your sin, if you know your sin, it will be so good for you, so good for your marriages, so good for your friendships, if you know them. 
forgiven. And Jesus becomes precious to you. And I'll close with this because when I thought of getting to this point in the message, I thought, you know, sometimes I hear people talk at Bethlehem about some of the language we use. Like, why do you folks talk in terms of treasuring Jesus and cherishing Jesus and delighting in Jesus and loving Jesus? I mean, this makes me feel the willies. You know? What do you talk about? You know why? We know our sin. If you know your sin and your hopelessness and your corruption, not just that you do a few wrong things, but you are wrong. You're corrupt at the center of your being. You've got a nature that is bad. And suddenly you learn the whole gospel is about a God who has found a way to be righteous and justify people like us. Acquit them. Adopt them. You grope for language for that Christ. You grope for language. You don't settle on some old-fashioned words that are just worn out in your own head, let alone everybody else's. You grope for, oh, Christ, how can I treasure you? How can I cherish you? How can I delight in you? That's why. We're just gropers. We're gropers for language. I want to create a, a vocabulary of affection for the most glorious, wonderful friend of sinners in the universe, Jesus Christ. So that you can let it out. Somehow get it out. It's in there for all who are saints in this